Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil, and find out. A Motorsport Podcast Network production. Hey everybody, Aaron Noonan here. Welcome along V8 Sleuth Podcast for another week. And this is part two of my two-part chat with longtime racer, publisher, and S5000 category founder, Chris Lambden. Now in this part, we delve into a bunch of topics, including how Motorsport News started and why he sold it. Following the early career of Mark Webber and his pathway into Formula One, Chris was there for his very first test with Arrows in 1999, as well as all the pathways, hurdles, bumps and jumps of making S5000 a reality. Also, we talk about what he's doing now in the wake of his departure from the Australian Racing Group. have to tell you too, we recorded this on the Tuesday uh, after the Bathurst 12 hour, and I was clearly still half asleep. I forgot to press the button that makes the audio go through the microphones rather than the little mics on the recorder. So the audio isn't as good as it normally would be, so that's my bad. But the story of Chris's motorsport career will more than make up for it. If you haven't heard part one, you need to make sure you have a listen. There's stories of Senna racing carts, buying a Brock Bathurst winner, and how he very nearly put together Craig Lowndes' first Bathurst 1000 appearance. So let's barrel into it. Buckle up, time to start part two of Chris Lambden on the V8 Sleuth podcast. Uh, we found something digging online, which you're, you're, you're getting worried here. Don't be worried, it's a good thing. By the way, all those cart and supercar mags are available online digitally for those who might want to check them out who, who don't know about them. Our team came across those in our, in our travels. But we found a little newspaper article, and you might be able to prove, you might be able to say yes or no to this, that... In 1994, we found a report of your Nissan Skyline that it was going to do Target Tasmania, running on street wheels and street tyres. Was that with you, someone else? Is that true, false, never happened? Yeah, um, I don't think it was me. Right. Um, yeah, um, someone had a, the idea of doing it, um, and I can't remember, did I... I think I, I don't know if I still owned it at that stage. I'd sold it to a guy um, who had a couple of McDonald's franchises and was a bit of a collector of, of Nissan's. So I vaguely remember that, but I, I, I don't recall having much to do with it. Not guilty, Your Honour, is probably the. Yeah, it would have been. It would have been uh, I think they'd have struggled to let it happen. Mm. You know, imagine yeah. a car yeah. like that on, on road tyres. <laughs> I mean, it's. Uh, it's not a lot different to something that just happened this last weekend at Bathurst, is it? But anyway, mm-hmm. there you go. Um, so that was a case of a... This is probably why, at the time, there wasn't a category, like a second-tier touring car category, to on-sell to, no. to protect a bit of value and to provide something for it to go. In those days, it was maybe a sports sedan or a collector, or but it wasn't like it is now. So you tried to sell that car for ages, didn't you? Because it, it just it wasn't the latest and greatest... Mm. Touring car racing and moved to V8s. What could anyone do? Yeah, it was sitting in my garage for 18 months or so. And um, as I said, eventually, um, I'm shocking at names, but um, this guy appeared and, and you know bought it off me for what was probably a good deal. Mm. For him. For him, not for you. <laughs> uh, and, and that was the end of it. But 19, early 90s, as you mentioned about the, the auto action being uh, ending because things were going on in the parent company that mm. changed. So, Nissan's gone, out of auto action, but the interesting thing you said earlier in our chat was that auto action had no competition and made a lot of money. Mm-hmm. So, were those two things the things that then led you to what was next, which was motorsport news? Absolutely. Um, as I said, the, the managing editor at Slime Magazine in those days was Len Shaw, who was a terrific guy. Anyone that was around at the time remember is very fondly. And I was, I guess, in some ways, one of his deputies as well. And we were the two people that had a bit of a plan uh, as what to do. An exit it, plan. No, if any opposition came up, oh, auto right. action, how to respond to bite them out, bite it off, or whatever. Yeah, we won't go into that. <laughs> um, but but unfortunately for them, uh, not only myself but Len himself, we were both retrenched on the same day in March of nineteen ninety three. Uh, and so 
the entire, I guess, plan for what to do if there was any opposition walked out the door. Mm. And I can't remember who it was. Someone said to me, um, it might have been, even been Bruce Williams, you know, this is, this, someone, someone needs to have a go at this. And so, um, yeah, I guess I took that seriously. And uh, over the next couple of months, sort of put a plan together, if you like. And um, in July, um, we launched Motorsport News. And we being yourself, Myself, Bruce. Bruce, David Hassel and Tony Glynn. Mm. Uh, and Viv Brumby, our um, graphics person. Uh, tiny little office in South Melbourne. And um, yeah, we but at that stage, auto action was fortnightly, so we slotted into the alternate week fortnightly. Uh, we went a bit radical, introduced a glossy cover. Mm. And, uh, Big standout. With a poster on the oh, inside. Oh, yeah, I remember it. the poster, don't you worry. And, and, I yeah. remember, and I remember the very first issue when we launched it. There was a lot of, it was quite a turnout. And Tim Pemberton, plastic, go, you've put staples through my poster. Because, <laughs> <laughs> of course, AA was never stapled together, and, and we chose to do that. And, um, yeah, there was, there, was, there was a lot of people there, and I'd have to say from day one it worked. Mm. Why did it work? Um, it worked because the people involved were good. They were motor racing people. Um, my philosophy is, is just get good people, let them do the job. Um, it was a great little team. And um, I guess the there was, a, shall we say, a degree of complacency back at uh, Sign Magazines at the time. And not too far down the track, in fact, they were uh, taken over by... Um, Mr. Packer's mob in Sydney, mm. and I can recall we were only nine months old, and I got flown to Sydney to meet the bigwigs, and they made us some kind of an offer, or else we'll crush you, kind of thing, mm. <laughs> um, which we, in our naivety, turned down. But frankly, that was the right thing to do. And, and uh, David Hassel said the same thing in the same chair. Yeah, last year, yeah. Motorsport it? News thrived at that mm. time, and uh, it did very well. Why did people, because Auto Action had been a staple for, by that stage, pretty much 20 years. So for for any organisation that's got such a hold over a, a spot in an industry, it's a really tightly held thing. How were, how were you able to just come in and instantly, it wasn't like it took a year or two of grinding to, it was pretty much immediate that it, that no, it took yeah. off. Look, it was fundamentally the same style of product, maybe up a notch in quality, um, on the alternate week, you know. I guess half the people were wondering, in, is it auto action this week or not? I don't know. Um, but, yes, literally from day one, the circulation was, was really good. Um, and then, uh, what was it, eight or nine months in, something happened in the world of motorsport that took our circulation through the roof. Uh, and that was Ayrton's crash. Mm. And um, the way it panned out, it, <laughs> this is talking business, it fell on our cycle. So, you know... Your week that you were That was our weekend, that's yeah. right. And so we had the, the death of Ayrton Senna on the cover of uh, Motorsport News. And it, I'm trying to think, the, the circulation went up some enormous amount, probably 60%, 70%. Uh, and when something like that happens, then you get a residual... You know, it does come back down, of course, but... You know, I got uh, that, uh, and that remains as the biggest selling issue of motorsport news of all time. Mm. Hard to ever beat something so globally huge. Well, it's, 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 it's a sad fact, I guess, yeah. that, 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 that in motorsport, that's why, because the, the second biggest selling issue of, all, of motorsport news of all time was, of course, the one following Peter's death. Mm. Mm. So, you know, out of those kind of tragedies, and in some ways, something something half okay can come but you know Peter had been really good to us at, uh, yeah. when we started Motorsport News um, he was very supportive um, he even did a column a very famous column Idiosyncrasies Idiosyncrasies. Five. brilliant wasn't it mm. um, literally he would dictate it to Bev who would handwrite it on, on paper and fax it to us and you know that was at a time when Peter had some slightly revolutionary ideas on the meaning of life and stuff and it was intriguing but he did it for us. He did it for nothing, mm. uh, and he did it for quite a while. And so, you know, I, I, I think um, you know that was just the, that side of Peter that was really, really good. He also loaned me, uh, loaned us his race suit and helmet, 
which I wore impersonating him in a little TV commercial we did. Oh, that was, was that when you first started the mag, or was it sort of the next year or something? Yeah. I do remember the ad. Yeah, it was a little way into it. I got it somewhere, but it was it was terrible. But, yeah. um, <laughs> but you know, there was that level of, um, of help, because mm. um, mm. I think he appreciated what we'd taken on and taken on the Goliath at, uh, at um, Auto Action. And Goliath responded, though, I think in 95, I think it was. So instead of being on the off weeks to you, they make the call to go weekly to go up against and mm. try to squash you out of the way. So this was their way to try to take you on and, and push you aside. Have you tried to buy you out beforehand? Yes. Um, I guess it's almost predictable in some ways. You know, they're a big, big, big company and uh, they don't take that kind of stuff I guess lying down, and yeah, they went weekly, and um, it, it affected us a little, not a lot, actually, because um, they changed a lot of things at the time. Uh, it became a different size and shape and colour, and one thing. Well, they, well, they put the event reports to the back, so you had to open from the back That's to right. read. It, it yeah. was kind of an odd yeah. system. Yeah, but whatever. But anyway. it, you know, it made life a, a little less comfortable for sure. But um, by that point, we had a pretty strong readership. Um, and, and you know, as I said, as we went through you know, past 2000 and the like, um, the biggest sort of cloud on the horizon was the growth of the internet mm. uh, and where that was all going to, to lead. Was this a case of everyone, because over time those four partners all ended up going in their, their various directions and you were left as the, the, yes. the sole remaining yep. fan, yep. Um, part of that remaining. So had every, clearly, and David did talk to us about this last year where Everyone had kind of put in, and oh, well, if we go right, we'll end up in a good spot by about here. And obviously, things went probably better than anyone could have hoped to, to expect. So, you built this thing into this thing, and then all these other little elements start to add. And I remember vividly the CAMS Motorsport Awards was part yes. of all that. So, the CAMS Awards, which were an annual thing, had a bit mm-hmm. of zhuzh to them. They had some. Um, I mean, Frank Gardner hosted it one year, didn't he? And there was all sorts of things I'm, that were done. I'm glad you mentioned that. No, that was, that was an interesting and a really good thing. It was about six or seven years, mm-hmm. and that was before supercars got big with their end-of-year thing. And, and it was it was Academy Awards night for motorsport. Mm-hmm. It was David's idea, uh, and, and uh, we partnered with Cams in doing it. They underwrote it, and we sort of produced it. And, we, you know, it was uh, the first half of the evening was the normal Cams here's your trophy thing. And then we shot off into, you know, best this, best young driver and a video and some entertainment and and it grew and, and uh, a couple of them were really quite good. You know, mm. I remember we had the McLaren two-seater in the middle of the room once yeah. and uh, I'm glad you mentioned Frank because that, was, that was the that night. best one of the lot. You know, we'd had, we'd had various hosts, you know, professionals, a radio DJ guy who was a waste of space actually and it cost $5,000. And we had this, this this sort of idea, you know, I knew Frank well, great raconteur. We, we said, Frank, would you like to do this? And to his credit, he said, yeah. And, uh, you know, long story short, he came down and it was a horrible hot day and we did the run-throughs, but um, he couldn't help himself. He was one of the world's great ad-libbers and it, it brought the house down. And I remember, who, who won the Gold Star Championship that year? Um, I forget, young guy from New Zealand. Simon uh, Wills. Yes, he, he came up to get his trophy and, uh, you know, all the thank yous and he almost broke into tears in the end sort of thanking his girlfriend and all that and off he went and Frank got back on the on the, uh, on the microphone, well done son, he said, uh, but uh, one big mistake, never thank the girlfriend, she'll want 50% of the gross. That <laughs> <laughs> brought the house down. You know, what a funny guy and, and, and I, I, such one of those little sad things, the way his life ended. Mm. Uh, but just, you know, those are the characters from that era of motorsport that you just can't replace. And that really was those motorsport awards. I think it was like 95 to 2000, that sort of period, and it tied into the Grand Prix for many years. So a lot of, you know, Mark Webber would come along or there'd be yeah. all sorts of amazing and interesting and big-name guests who would, would pop in as part of it, which was which was really cool. It's a sad thing that that's not still part of the landscape. Yeah, because it, yeah it stopped for a couple of reasons. One, um, obviously supercars were imposing themselves on the scene and, and took the Christmas slot for their event. The Gala Awards. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. And, and B, it so became a little harder. And, and, you know, I think it's fair to say there were a couple of little ripples with cans along the way. And, and after the seventh one, 
um, we just took the decision that we might not do it anymore. <laughs> but it was good. And plenty of good stuff came after that. So there was, I remember, and I was there by that stage, swapped from the newspaper format to an actual magazine format. So that was a big change in 2000. Um, lots of young guys got opportunities, myself included, but there was guys now who were doing all sorts of things in all sorts of places, whether it's Andrew Van Leeuwen, who hosts the Castro Motorsport News Podcast with us and works for motorsport.com. Chris Jordan's with Porsche now in the Middle East and was here in Australia with them for a long time. Yeah. Grant Rowley's the, the yeah. AIG PR man and doer of all sorts of different media things. Uh, there's been a whole pile of people who've got an opportunity through motorsport news. Mm. It, was, it was a great place. Um, to be honest, that's one of the nice things to remember about it, is that we had some really good young people come through, started you know, at the bottom, mm. as you did, mm. Um, and are now very much part of the scene, both in media and PR and motorsport. And I think that that's the benefit of the philosophy of, of, of hire people that you think are good, tell them what you want and just let them get on with it. 2007, e-news. So you talked before about the internet and it was coming and it was going to be the thing. So you come up with e-news. So it was basically a magazine without being a physical magazine so people would subscribe to it and then be able to flick through the pages on screen. It was kind of that first step to the digital thing. And I remember thinking, whoa, you're a bit ahead. Of, were you ahead of your time? Or you should have gone further with it at the time? Or was it about right? Um, look, in reflection, we were not floundering, but we, we figured we, we had to somehow be in the digital space in due course. Because, you know, print around everywhere was struggling, starting to struggle against the internet. and So this was our... Um, this was our attempt, if you like, to, to have a digital thing. And, you know, on reflection, uh, I don't think it was the best option. That's what we did. You know, we did, we created e-news, which came out every week. And then we switched the printed publication to monthly and it became more. But, and, you know, initially it was free online, but it just wasn't adding up and we tried to introduce the subscription side of it and yeah, look, to be honest, um, I think it was a way of trying to do it, but ultimately, um, you know, and it looked good and out of it, it also down the track came GP Week, which was an international um, similarly configured thing, uh, but um, ultimately uh, the, the way that I think proved for the industry and for the sport and for the way it is, the, the, the way to go turned out to be what um, things like Ultimately Speed Cafe and you have done uh, with Sliff. Mm. So you sold out 2010, I think it was, you, you sold Motorsport News. Was that a case of it was just time to move on or what was this, uh, or the, yes. the, the, the whole element of swapping to this a total digital thing is a whole other step and this might just be a whole bit too hard? Uh, yeah, I just sensed that this was close to the end, to be honest. Everything has a sort of natural... Has a life. And, yeah. and, you know, print publishing, per se, is... I mean, you know, look at the age these days. Look how big that used to be and how not big it is now. And so just purely from the, you know, doing your best to look forwards, I just thought, well, I think this is the time to, to step out of it. And... Uh, you know, um, I've told a few people a story that um, a couple of years before that, uh, the British mob uh, Haymarket were coming to Australia and they had got in touch with us and made us a fairly reasonable offer to uh, to buy motorsport news. But part of it was they wanted to move everything to Sydney, which would have made all these guys losing their jobs. And um, I turned it down. Um, in retrospect, if I've got time again, I might not. Uh, because ultimately, when we did come to sell it, it its value in the marketplace was less than you know, less than that. Mm. But um, but it was the time. It was the time for me anyway to, to get out of it. What's its legacy, BMM? It lasted what ninety three to thirteen. Next media kept it going for a few mm. more years after that. So a thirty year, oh, sorry, a twenty year stint is pretty handy in any form of publishing. But what's its What's its legacy? What does it? What just the thing that stands out to you oh. from that time? Because it was a very long era there. Yeah, look, it's hard to say. I, I guess other people might judge that more so than, than me. But um, I like to think that we um, aimed at quality of journalism uh, uh, and the way we went about it. You know, the 
like the current sort of clickbait approach to media just drives me mad. Uh, it is just appalling stuff. You know, some of the online uh, news limited stuff is simply atrocious. And so, um, in terms of publishing um, quality, I think that that, that was that was good. Um, as we've said, a number of good young people came through there who are now in all different areas of, of motorsport uh, journalism, which is good. So that might be considered a legacy. You're a legacy, Aaron. That makes me sad old. <laughs> you are. Uh, if people could see photos of the high school kid that rolled in. I think we've used them on socials before. Yeah, the, I figure it's better to use them before other people use them against you. you know, so. This guy had work experience in yeah. motorsport news. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, yeah. And, and look, it was a lot of fun. And, and I guess for me personally, it continued um, uh, what I describe to people as an irresponsible life. Um, scraping together a living, hanging around motorsport. Mm. You know, to think I could have been an architect. Yeah, uh, I did. and my dad wasn't too happy. By the way, when yeah. I, uh, you know, walked away from that and shot off to Europe, and uh, took him quite a few years to to understand that there might be other things in life. <laughs> <laughs> what? Um, uh, we'll move on from the, the motorsport new stuff because we've kind of we've yep. kind of covered a lot of that. One of the next things, or actually, just one little thing I wanted to add to that whole thing was was Weber, because. Yes. Through that motorsport news era, MN was a massive Weber supporter. When bigger, you know, the dailies didn't get it. When other mobs occasionally, I mean, wasn't there that famous story that another mob had said that he tested for McLaren, which was absolutely not true, and put on the cover and everybody else followed with it. But when I say we, having been at MN around that time, were in the Weber camp or he was trying to climb Everest to get to Formula One. It yeah. was a, a stunning little era there, and you were there when he first tested that arrows. Remember in yes. late '99, I think it yeah. was in Spain. Yeah, look, it was just another of those sort of meeting the right people at the right time things. Like we, we knew I knew Anne Neal, um, who'd come back from England where she was running Formula Ford, come back to Australia. I knew her, and I, I knew of Mark before they knew each other, mm. um, and um, it just happened that. Uh, Mark's dad approached Anne about doing some PR and Anne started talking to us and, and yeah I remember uh, she organised for me to meet Mark at a coffee shop in uh, Parramatta or Oran Park weekend um, and so on and so on and so you know we had that personal link from early on um, and so I guess yeah we were I wouldn't say you know it's probably we weren't in the camp in terms of totally you know one-eyed but um, we were part of that as it evolved and um, you know both in the racing side and as it turned out on the personal side um, with Mark and Anne and uh, it's a fascinating story and yes um, at less than 24 hours notice I got to go to the first test uh, which wasn't really a test with the arrows but then later that year the Benetton test I did the same thing uh, got there within 24 hours, so we were there and um, was part of it. And it's, you know, it was a bit like the centre thing. Someone you knew growing up mm. and, and getting somewhere and, and trying to make it happen. And the fact that he did make it happen um, was was fabulous. And and as a result, when he made that debut at the Grand Prix um, in what year was that? O two. O two. Through that, I was literally able to stand in the garage and you know watch him drive the car out onto the track for the first time and a whole lot of stuff you know um so it's yeah it's just it's just as i said it's almost like being a an uncle and watching someone grow up and um it would turn out to be a, a fascinating story i have a memory of him from that first test not yeah first time he drove one and at mm. the arrows that you went to and it was on the front cover and I laugh in the last 20-odd years when I hear people say how, oh, he's arrogant, or he's this, or he's that. And I'm like, well, you've clearly never met the bloke because he's totally not, to the point where I can only explain And it sticks in my memory from that old office in Caulfield North. In the week or two after that test, and I think it was the, like the Christmas issue, it was the, sort of there wasn't going to be one for a couple of weeks. And in those days, the magazines would arrive from the printers to our office, and kind of our last job for the issue, everyone would grab a few boxes and a few post tubs and stuff them into envelopes for subscribers and free list members and, and all that stuff. And he was in town at the time coming in for lunch, as he did occasionally. He sat there with us and took a pile and stuffed magazines. He was on the front cover driving a Formula One car for the first time. And here's the bloke 
stuffing magazines in with all of us so we can go to lunch faster. Mm. No, exactly, exactly. And look, that was a time when we were in, in con, you know, touch an awful lot. Um, probably less so these days. It you know, lives outside of the world and all that stuff. But it, to me, he remains one of the least affected guys by fame. Mm. You know, um, they had to work for it. Um, it it's, you know, it's, it's, it's totally clear that without Anne, he would probably be a plumber in Canberra. Uh, and it was just a team that worked. And uh, to be sort of just off to one side watching it all happen was, was A, fascinating, and B, ultimately quite quite rewarding. Mm. And, um, you know, and it resulted, I guess, in a, in a small way when, when, uh, when, I forget who it was, the big publisher did his autobiography, um, we had previously talked about doing a book and I've done quite a bit of the stuff and had it, uh, you know, stacked away. Um, and we were going to try and bring something out when he went to Williams, <laughs> but that turned out to be a bit of a disaster, so it got shelved for a while. But anyway, long story short, a lot of that stuff that, that, that we'd done in preparation for that was kind of absorbed into the official autobiography that came out yeah. uh, when it did. So when Motorsport News ended, after that, you ended up on the commission of supercars when they decided to have a an independent person, yes. someone additional to yes. it. So you, uh, June 11 to September 13, my notes tell me, but how did that all come to be? What, what was um, well, after I got out of um, motorsport news, I, I was sort of sitting around thinking, you know, what to do, um, and there was a couple of things that, that, that I did, but out of the blue, they, yes, that was when the commission was founded. I think they were doing it to impress potential new owners, i.e. Archer, and, and have an independent on the commission. And frankly, they, they didn't really want an independent. That, that, you know, it was there for show, not go. Uh, well, to me, an independent is someone who expresses a point of view that may not actually necessarily concur with, 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 uh, you know, with, with others. And uh, along the way... It, created some interest and I guess it's fair to say that uh, at the end of the two years um, they uh, let me know that it wouldn't be continuing and that the new independent would be uh, brought in, who was a lovely guy, Neil Crompton, but hardly independent I would have thought. So it was a good idea at the time uh, and from my perspective very interesting. Um, so you know, yes I've got a, I guess a view of, of how things are done behind the scenes at supercars. Something else I wanted to ask you about was your Formula 5000 car. Yes. You went Formula 5000 historic racing. I did. Why? Bucket With list. Bucket list. One it was word, always, you one always word bucket list. Yeah, yeah. I, I probably couldn't really, I didn't really have the money to do it. But um, And it all started, you know, I, I saw them running at the Grand Prix and whatever, and, and I got to meet the, the guy, the New Zealand guy, David Abbott, who pretty much was, runs the whole thing out there, a wonderful guy. And he said, oh, come over uh, to Rupuna in August. We're having a bit of a track day. You can have a drive in my car. Well, his car is only the, um, the Lola uh, that uh, Warwick Brown used to race, you know. Mm. Um, which model is it? T332 or a four? No, no, four. one with the side radiators. Yeah, very unique one. I'll think of it soon. Mm. Anyway, and, you know, people make those kind of offers and they forget. But anyway, he rang up. Oh, you're coming. You're coming. So, yeah, I went over and... Um, in fact, uh, Motorsport News did a bit of a feature on it. Uh, so I had a drive of this, this, this Lola, and I, it was just like, it was just like, you know, I walked through the gates of heaven. It was just amazing, you know, just amazing. And so, yeah, I, I managed to put a, a deal together whereby I end up sharing ownership of a McRae with a guy in New Zealand, and I was able to do it for 18 months to two years. Um, very interesting, mind-blowing. The first time I drove this car in real length was at Phillip Island. Can you imagine that? Uh, that would get your attention. It was ferocious. Well, I remember that the guys who helped to run the car said to me after a couple of sessions, you know, because uh, there's no data or any of that crap, um, you know, what revs is it doing going into turn one? I said, I haven't got a damn clue. Um, I'm not taking my eyes off the road for a nanosecond. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, it was a massive experience. It's, it's the one thing that, that surpasses the rawness of what I used to experience in supercars mm. and uh, like you know the first time you you uh, go for it, you, your brain goes out through the back of your skull and so you know I, I did it and it was a great experience um, the other thing I learned was that with a 20 year gap 
since when I last raised something, you might think your sort of brain is still there, but it's not quite what it was, you know. The only people that, that it is are people like John Bauer and Ken Smith who never stop. Mm. Uh, in my case, yeah, I discovered that mm, time does, does uh, ha- have a modest effect. So I, you know, I knocked a wheel off it at uh, uh, one spot. And, but it, again, I, it was a bucket list thing and I experienced it. And it was a time when I wasn't quite sure what else I was going to do. You know, and uh, people said to me, you know, you could kill yourself in a car like that. And, and bizarrely, I really didn't care, <laughs> which is kind of funny. Um, so, yeah, but um, well, obviously something else came out of that in due course. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds, you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil and find out. So what became S5000 now as we know it, that's around, that you, we'll, we'll talk about all that stuff, but was it having the historic Formula 5000 car that lit the switch for you for what became... Formula Thunder 5000, was it already a, a seed that was planted and it, it came through there? I'm really interested to hear. This was about, the historic car was what, 2010, 2011, somewhere in that uh, sort of area? 2011, 12, yeah, around, 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 the, around that period. Look, it was just some blokes sitting around going, imagine if there was a modern version of this. How cool would that be? And um, yeah, not having loads to do at the time, I started thinking about that. And um, I thought about it, and I thought about it. And uh, the first guy I went and spoke to was Michael Borland, um, who's a good friend and, you know, Australia's preeminent race car constructor. And we started to do a little bit of research to see if it could be done. Um, and, you know, I was running around all over the place uh, trying to figure out how we might do it. But luckily I got some good people involved in the dream to start with, including Roger Higgins, um, the engine guy, uh, and Michael and um, and we, you know, got a, a, at one point I was in England looking at a fleet of uh, GP, um, what was it, Grand Prix? The GP Masters. GP Masters the, cars. The cars that they, yeah. which were, I think, the, like a modified Reynard. Yes, and they'd yeah. only ever done five races and it, and it went under, went broke. And so there's 16 of these cars lined up for sale. Um, and I almost got to the point of having struck a deal there, but then... The people at the other end pulled out of it, uh, which probably was a good thing. Um, yeah, and we, we were just trying to see if it could be done, you know. And, and the most obvious thing was um, the whole carbon fibre stuff, how to do a tub, where to get a tub. We were going to make them here at one point. Um, and we eventually alighted upon the Swift, which had just been superseded in Japan uh, for their formula. And there was one brand new tub still sitting in a corner. And so that's what we acquired to build up what was that first prototype car. And when you say we, who's we? Is, is this you just dragging a bunch of mates or financial backers? Oh. Or is this just, <laughs> this literally is napkin in a restaurant. Hey, what if we did this and we do this? Is, is this Sort of. Yeah. Um, th- there were no other investors. I did talk to some people around, you know, there's some wealthy people around the sport, but I think it's fair to say no one really thought it was a brilliant idea. <laughs> um, uh, but my accountant said, well, look, if you, know, if you think, then, then just do it. And so I did. So, yeah, look, I, I, uh, this gets back to the Commodore when, um, when you know, the, the house's mortgage took a bit of a beating to make that happen. Well, the same thing happened here. So I was financially involved. Um, the only real party that, that needed to be involved was Michael Bourne and, him, and Roger and Hollinger. Uh, they're all very, very smart people. And so it came together, you know, uh, me just saying what I thought we needed to do and Michael making it happen. And um, that first car, um, I think, was is a brilliant, brilliant car. Mm. But, uh, you know, as, as the, the, there was some road humps along the way through that and probably the worst day of my motor racing life when I discovered long before they knew I'd discovered that supercars were going to build a copycat car and just try and screw me over. Uh, that, was a sh- that wasn't a good time. But um, that ultimately, again, got sorted, you know, through uh, John McMillan, uh, 
by John Bauer introducing me to Brian Boyd, who'd been, I think, pushed into funding this other car that I refer to as the shit heap. And um, Brian, I met with Brian for an hour in Sydney's office and everything got merged together and the whole thing got saved and away we went. In one day? In one hour. In one hour? In one hour, we agreed this is what was going to happen. Brian was going to, you know, absorb everything into his thing and I would carry on and oversee it. Uh, But, you know, with John McMillan overseeing it, you know, which is, I'll always be indebted to John for that um, because he didn't like what they'd done. You know, they could have just rung up and said, hey, looks interesting let's have a chat instead they tried to to uh to kill us off so um and ultimately it worked out because as you you may have even been there at the gold coast there was some back-to-back public testing done and uh, the shitty kept expiring in a cloud of smoke or broken suspension and so it was our car holders boldest that ended up going forward and, and that original car mm-hmm. what became of that it's still sitting uh around in, in a friend of mine's garage as we speak um Obviously, the next issue was Motorsport Australia and all the regulatory stuff, and uh, I guess it was no surprise to think that they had concerns. Uh, one stage, I was told Jean is concerned. That's Jean Todd. Yeah, you're right. Um, and they they wanted, a, a, you know, more updated uh, F1 safety levels and this and that, and it was getting very heated. Um, it was going to cost a fortune. It might well have even killed the whole thing off. But out of the blue, we learned of um, Enroy Ligier's tub that was being produced for the American market. So it became, through. it became that the Swift was not an option no. because it didn't have Halo. It became an option because what Motorsport Australia wanted us to do to make it. Halos were just coming at the time. There was just other stuff, uh, and it would have required re-crash testing. I mean, I, I had acquired from Swift every mould, every jig, everything required to build the car. 40 foot container full of stuff. Uh, but we were going to uh, one point build the tubs here, but we were going to get them built uh, with a mob called uh, KCNG in Asia. And so then it became, well, if someone else is going to build them, even though it's the same moulds, um, we'll have to re-crash test it all. And just, just nuts. It was, would have killed the project. Um, and then up popped the Ligier, and um, that happened very quickly. Uh, I went over to uh, their place in the States, um, and the, um, the guy who owned the business um, was also um, on the F1 uh, commission, FIA, so he said, look, there's no problem, this will be fine. Um, the biggest issue we had was um, somehow grafting the rear end of our existing car with a big wide V8, onto a tub built for inline engines, but there was a very smart solution to that. And in a relatively short time, that final car was created. And I was pretty proud of it. I thought it was a pretty good car. And, and it just in terms of the industry here, people like Michael and Roger, I think it's just a massive, massive credit to them. When you found out that the other thing was a thing, mm. which you said before, you found out, I think, before they knew you found out well, what was out of it. Imagine ringing around your teams and asking, has anybody got a, a um, uh, what should we call it, that you put carbon fibre in? Uh, autoclave. autoclave. An autoclave yeah. big enough for a Formula 2 car? And, like, I don't have friends around the teams and someone didn't ring me up and said, why are they asking if we've got an autoclave for a Formula 2 car? And, yeah, so I, 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 we, we figured it out pretty early on. It was the premise that they were going to use supercar engines and running gear. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's going to be second-hand supercar engines, second-hand supercar gearboxes. You know, um, I don't know who came up. Well, I do know who came up with that idea, and uh, we'll move on. <laughs> it's been, uh, as history shows, you and Brian Boyd had your meeting. Things got put together. It became a thing. Tell me about that first, when did it first run, the, the, the S, what was the S5000 car? Because there was a fair bit of testing. At that point, did you feel, we're, we're on here? Now we've got we've got rid of all the politics and all the other car and all the other stuff. We're all on the one path. That must have been a really proud moment to get that car rolling and actually starting to run. Oh, it, it, yeah, no, we, we tested it at... Um Winton briefly, and then we went to Sydney for the official launch. I was there, I remember. Yeah, 
That's right, you hosted it. I did, yeah, that's right. I knew Jesus Christ yeah, yeah. paid you, I think. I can't um, something, yeah. Well, something. By then, uh, you know, um, Brian Boyd's company was paying the bills, so <laughs> it was okay. Um, yeah, look, and uh, that was quite a day, absolutely. Um, but, you know, there remained one further major thing, and that was how to build a lot of them. Uh, but the first thing was the car was there, it was accepted, people drove it, people liked it. Um, and I, I think that given what we aimed to achieve, I think we we did most of it. You know, like people like Hollinger, they you know, they, they, they made a, an adaptation of a, an existing gearbox to, to suit. And it's just a, an example of a fantastic example of Australian motorsport engineering. So, yeah, I was pretty thrilled. Um, but then we had to consider how we were going to build it, you know, and I had some thoughts um, of, of how we would assemble, build the cars uh, somewhere near Michael's place, etc., etc. but this was just thought bubbles at the time, really, and then out of the blue, um, Gary Rogers came into the picture. And they took over, in essence, the, the, to be able to build, whatever they built of them, 16, 17, 18, whatever it is, cars, in a mass way, rather than one here, one there, one there. Oh, absolutely. They were able to step it up. Absolutely. I mean, as I said, we had some thought of how we were going to do it and, you know, whether 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 Brian Boyd's uh, company would have stepped up to fund that, I don't know. But absolutely, Gary stepped forward. He liked it. Um, they committed to doing it. And, you know, the first batch of 13 cars, I think, uh, and then there's been some more since. Um, like, they did a fabulous job. You know, they had an existing facility it made it easy. Um, they they productionised some of the little bits and pieces on the car, and the final car that, that was produced was was terrific, absolutely terrific. And um, you know, it it, it uh, they did it in a reasonably quick amount of amount of time. So that, uh, in the end, the, the category debuted at Sandown when it did. Twenty nineteen, mm. and among the field was Rubens Barrichello. Mm. How did you get Rubens? Bring them up. <laughs> <laughs> that is no, not quite, not quite. Um, but they were very keen to 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 have a name there, and so um, uh, I rang Greg Siddle, Peewee, mm. who seems to you know has still got very very strong links with and helps and oversees a number of Brazilians. So I rang Peewee, Peewee rang Rubens, and we did a deal. And uh, yeah, um, there he was, mm. and uh, what a fantastic guy, I might say. Mm. He gave it so much eyeballs because of his history, his name. And mm. the fact he drove a red car was a nice touch the way it all panned out. Oh, exactly. As well. No, exactly. That was that was probably, you know, it was good a kick off for the category as you could have hoped for. And um, yeah, he was very complimentary and as you know, uh, came back subsequently. But uh, yeah, that that first that first race day. Um, at Sandown was the, the time when I actually sat down. I didn't cry, uh, but I thought, shit, you know, we've actually done it. Mm. Well, I remember it was at Sandown, however many years before that, that you told me behind the pad- behind the pits in the paddock, hey, quietly, I've got this going on, I'm working on this thing. I remember thinking, if you get this thing to go, this will be, this is pretty cool. This is, no one else is trying to do this sort of stuff. Mm. This is, this is pretty yeah. cool. So COVID happened too, remember, off the back of that 2020 Grand Prix weekend and basically racing stopped in ARG land for, for mm. a fair while. Mm. Was there a threat that that might not have been able to get the category up and going again off the back of that? Oh, look, there's no doubt that that whole bad year of COVID affected everybody, obviously, in motorsport, but probably us more than anything, like a new category, trying to get started, um, you know, trying to get people to commit um you know, uh, it, it was. It's not easy, and and let's be frank. There, there are other elements of motorsport out there could have probably done without a new category appearing uh, that was you know, offering something different. Um, but look, at the end of the day, Australia is and has been for quite a long time now a touring car country, um, and so you know you are taking on that that thing. But um, you know, we. we there's been a few ups and downs along the way and, and restrictions here and there and, you know, a few challenges for sure. Uh, but I still remain absolutely committed to the, the concept that that, uh, that it offers something, you know, to Australian motorsport. It's a bit like 
NASCAR and IndyCar in the States, they coexist perfectly happily. Um, so, you know, if it can, can grow despite its sort of up and down start with COVID and everything and get some numbers, I mean, the last race in Adelaide was pretty okay. Um, it uh, just needs that guidance and, and that kind of stuff. Um, and it was always always designed as a, I guess, a destination category. You know, like people say, oh, but it's not a pathway. No, it's not. Now, if you want to go to Formula One, actually, mate, you you do karting and then and you get out of Australia. Leave. Go. You know, like Oscar Piastri and Nick Duansboy have never raced a car in Australia. Mm. So that doesn't matter. And, yeah, but what about a pathway to supercars? Well, yeah, yeah, you know. Um, look at James Gold. A couple of years in this 5,000 certainly kept him sharp. Mm. Um, and there were barriers there until recently. You had to race a super two car. We've managed to get that removed. So I'm hoping that over time um, that'll settle down, um, but that, it, that it's a, a category a bit like Formula 5000 was in the day uh, that can stand on its own two feet. The end of last year, or early into this year, you've no longer with ARG, no longer involved in running mm-hmm. a series per se. Uh, have, do you feel like... Has your feelings towards category changed now that you're not directly involved in it, apart from being a part owner of, of that car that's in macro drive? Uh, no, not really. I'm still a massive believer in it, and, and I'm, I guess I'm a little slightly frustrated that I'm still not part of the the, um, the, the, the business that runs the cars and runs the things, but, you know, it's it's uh, it's in the hands of GRM, um, and, and Barry Rogers is you know, the majority shareholder in ARG and, and so on and so on. So, you know, they're working... Pretty hard. Um, I mean, the the uh, push to pass initiative that they they tried late last year is a good thing, and so on and so on. So, um, you know, I think, yeah, um, my role is kind of the creator of it, and I have very firm views as to how things would be. Um, it's now you know, it's, it's been a while, <laughs> uh, and so it's probably the right time to to not be involved in that day to day, as you say. Um, I'm still involved as part owner of Tim Macro's car, and so I'll probably do something there. But at the moment, I'm um, just having a, I guess, a, a little bit of a think time about what next. You know, um, I'm not the sort of person who's going to go and sit on the beach, and um, I hopefully find a project to, uh, to um, you know, get me out of bed in the morning. What does S five thousand need? Apart from the obvious, you know, mm. more cars would be great, but that needs more funding. Can you realistically see it getting to a point where it's at a 18 regular car to 20 car field, that it can stand on its own two feet, that there's not you know deals being done just to mm. get cars on a track to fulfil a quota? What's it going to mm. take? What's it going to need? And heart, hand on heart, is it realistically mm. possible in the next year, two, three years? Mm. Look, I hope so, but it, it's, you know, I'm biased, of mm, course, totally, but totally. as I said, it's a, it's a touring car country, supercars, you know, is the absolute dominant thing in this country, and that, that's good in a lot of ways, but it also provides some, some barriers elsewhere, um, and so, you know, that, that's one of the things that you're, um, that you're kind of fighting. Um, there were a few decisions made, you know, along the way by... Motorsport Australia that I don't think helped the category. So there's a few areas to to be tidied up. Um, I, I don't know what the grid is looking like for the start of this year. Um, I'm hearing there's some some good young names in there, and the more the more you get people like James Golding, um, you know, stepping into a supercar and dragging a basement team up into the top ten, the better, uh, and that kind of thing. And you know, and so in, in, in some ways that's why I'm a bit frustrated for say Joey Morsett, who one of the things that I think I'll always be pleased about was bringing him back from Europe, putting his deal together to race for two years, win the gold star, and yet he couldn't get a co-drive, you know, in a supercar because the you know, supercars prefers its teams to utilise super two people. Um, that kind of thing. It, it's it's you can't you can't it's it's smart business, I guess, but it's in, from a sporting sense, it, it frustrates me a little bit. But um, you know, the more good guys you get in there at the front, um, you know, 
the, it has that potential. Whether it'll get there, we'll see. But, um, you know, it costs half of what it costs to race a Super 2 car to race an S5000 car. Mm. So all that was achieved. You know, the whole, that was one of the deals. It needed to be achievable. You know, do you know all the engines in that category are still on their first cycle? Mm. You know, they haven't had any, any rebuilds yet and they've still got a long way to go. So, you know, it, it provides spectacle with... Um, with sensible costs, but you know there are other issues that you have to deal with. As I said, with um, say, motorsport administration and their strange views on safety sometimes. Mm. What's I mean, obviously you said you're in a bit of a, a holding pattern now, a bit of a yep. bit of time out, a bit of a look and see what's what's mm. out there. As we've talked about over the course of our chat, you've got this very wide skill set and history in the sport. Of you've been behind the wheel, you've been behind the keyboard, you. You know, create a category. There's a bit of everything here. Is there something that's is, is there an itch left to scratch, or is it a case of whatever you do next is kind of going to be a, an interesting thing that keeps you sort of interested yeah. and, and and motivated for the next little bit? Yeah, it, it's really hard to say. I've got no real preconceived ideas at the moment. I mean, literally, uh, since architecture and school and I parted company, you know, I've um, uh, you know made my way through life linked to motorsport and I've had a ball like I've been very lucky you know uh, there was a book once brought out wasn't it called A Fortunate Life someone famous wrote a book called A Fortunate uh, Life spell, yeah. yeah well that's me you know um, doors have opened when I needed them to and um, I've, I've had a ball so I can't see me doing anything that's not really around motor racing um, I don't know we'll see what see what comes up um, as I said uh, I've still got the link through the car that Tim Macro was racing. Um, he's now retired mm. and trying to put a little team together. Um, hopefully being involved with it, but we'll just see. We'll just see. Um, just see what crops up. You never know where it might take you from here to there to anywhere, from carts to England to New Zealand to Australia mm. to magazines to categories. Um, it's been a great chat. Thanks for sitting down with me and uh, covering off some of it. It's been really fun. Yeah, no, thanks. And there you have it, Chris Lambden on the V8 Sleuth podcast. What an interesting motorsport story he has to tell. No doubt he'll find a project or two to sink his teeth into in upcoming months and he'll have some more chapters to write in that story. Now, before I go, I need you to make me a promise. You need to promise that every Tuesday you'll listen to the Castrol Motorsport News podcast. You've got to make it part of your weekly motorsport listening habits. AVL, Andrew Van Leeuwen, and, well, Stefan Bartholomeus, let's call him SB because if you're going to have one guy with an acronym and initials, then you've got to do it to the other one. It's only fair. Uh, the boys have got the latest motorsport insights and analysis. It's keeping the motorsport news name alive in a new digital era. I'll have another Repco Supercars weekly episode for you later this week, and we'll be back with the V8 Sleuth podcast next Wednesday for another episode then. Look forward to you joining us. Bye for now. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online. Thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil and find out.